Jesus was calling them into an alternative kingdom. Jesus launched a polarization busting movement. The unwillingness to forgive causes what scripture calls a root of bitterness that grows deep and we keep feeding it. Be aware, be centered, and be engaged. Morning, Campus House. So good to have you here. Today, I want to continue our conversation from three weeks ago talking about Jesus and politics. And I want to remind us that our call is what Ralph just prayed it's to embody and demonstrate the way of Jesus and his kingdom in every, every part of our lives in the midst of. A present cultural moment that is not so unlike every cultural moment that has always been since the crunch of the fruit in the garden. What has been true throughout the millennia, throughout every generation of every people group in every part of the world, is that sin always brings separation. And that that separation is both a vertical separation and a horizontal separation. Sin always disconnects us from the fullness of the grace and truth of Jesus, and it disconnects us from one another. And that's the beauty of the cross, this intersection of grace and truth that reconciles us to the Father through the sacrifice of Jesus, but also by proxy to one another. So that's what I want to talk about today. Today's sermon is called The Jesus Way, Mind the Gap. The Jesus Way is a series that we've been in for the last few weeks. Mind the Gap comes from, anybody ever been to England? Okay, a couple people. If you go to London and you take the underground, which is called the tube, um, then uh, you will see Mind the Gap everywhere, and you'll hear it over the speaker, Mind the Gap. Mind the gap. And the reason is that between the platform and the train, there is a sometimes pretty sizable gap that, you know, you can lose your puppy if it's five pounds or uh, get your foot stuck in. It could cause havoc. And so um, there are warnings. There are imperatives to mind the gap. And that's, mind is not a word that we use a lot. We might say, um, you know, don't mind me. I'll just be over here in the corner while you, you know, do your thing. But mind is a really full word as a verb. And so I found three definitions for us that really uh, give us a bit of a structure for where to go today, okay? The first definition is to pay attention, to observe, to listen, The second definition is to not just observe, but to regard what you are observing as important. Feel concerned about that and orient and reorient your life around what is true about that, right? The third definition is then not just to observe and not just to feel concerned, but to actually act, to devote yourself 
to take appropriate action. So I've boiled that down into three quick phrases. Be aware, be centered, and be engaged. First of all, just be aware of the gap that exists, the relational gap between us. So I read this in New York Times on Thursday, I think, as the United States grappled with the uncertainty over the still unresolved presidential election on Wednesday. The Gap tweeted, the Gap, the the company, tweeted an image of a half-red, half-blue hoodie bearing the brand's logo along with the caption, the one thing we know is that together we can move forward. Clicking the image showed the sweatshirt being zipped up. The post, which was subsequently deleted, quickly went viral and was met with widespread mockery and criticism. Read the room, several users wrote. Really, a, a red, white, and blue hoodie is the healing ointment America needs? Chrissy Teigen wrote, yay, we can just walk sideways depending on what city we're in. The incident is likely to serve as a warning for other brands that may be considering offering commentary on the election. In other words, we are not allowed to talk about unity right now. It's too soon. The wounds are too raw. I read this in The Atlantic on Friday. There's no escaping who we Americans have become. We are stuck with one another, seeing no way out and no apparent way through, sinking deeper into a state of mutual incomprehension and loathing. We have to live and govern ourselves together, but we still don't know how. Those words echo the words of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. several decades before. He said, returning hate for hate multiplies hate, adding deeper darkness to a night already devoid of stars. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. Hate multiplies hate. Violence multiplies violence, and toughness multiplies toughness in a descending spiral of destruction. So when Jesus says, love your enemies, he is setting forth a profound and ultimately inescapable admonition. Have we not come to such an impasse in the modern world that we must love our enemies or else? The chain reaction of evil, hate begetting hate, Wars producing wars must be broken or we should be plunged into the dark abyss of annihilation. In his new book, Love Over Fear, Dan White Jr. writes, polarization takes people that have something in common, emphasizes their differences, hardens their differences into disgust and turns their disgust into blatant hatred. It creates two sharply contrasting groups and pits them against each other, shaping us for only two options, our side or their side. It is a suffocating social arrangement, us versus them. Carl Jung, the psychologist, was in human development. In his study, included whether humans were willing to move beyond polarized thinking and embrace tension and complexity in their life. 
And what he discovered is that polarization is not a result of informed thinking. It is a result of emotional regression. In other words, we slide back to childhood when we particularly dislike something about a person or people group and deem it necessary to find ways to accumulate a burning mound of facts about why we should hate and fear them. We self-identify by our opposites, by comparisons. We tend to narrowly drift toward people who are like us and away from people who are not like us. Again, Dan White Jr. says, let me say it plainly. When Christians respond in polarized ways, we are not growing up in Christ. We are acting as spiritual infants. There is another way, and that's the Jesus way. And his way through the milieu of polarization and bitterness begins with an awareness of the gap, the gap of disparity, the gap of distrust, the gap of disconnection, an awareness of our need for forgiveness, but also our need to forgive, an awareness of the gap between us and God, but also us together between each other an awareness of what contributes to that gap and what Jesus is calling us into, which leads to the second definition of the word mind. To mind means to pay attention, to observe, to listen, but it also means to regard as important, to feel concern about, to be centered, specifically to be centered on the way of Jesus. I think it's somehow comforting to realize that polarization and distrust and fractures and factions and all sorts of uh, disconnection has been um, present in the church, and yet Jesus is still building his church despite the immaturity and the insecurity and the insolence of his followers. I find that a bit comforting, that this isn't new. (laughs) That there's always been, since the church began, there's always been this wrestling toward uh, of unity. This this, uh, proneness toward disunity. Uh, Paul's addressing it to the Corinthian church. He says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree with one another, that there be no divisions among you, that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household, and if you're named Chloe, this isn't you, I just wanna clear that up to your roommates. Some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. And if there are quarrels among you, then this is for you, okay? Uh, What I mean is, One of you says, I follow Paul. Another says, I follow Apollos. Another says, I follow Cephas or Peter. Still another says, I follow Christ. Paul says, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? His call is for unity away from the polarization that was going on in the Corinthian church. It had split into all of these different factions. 
And that division shows up in a lot of different ways, even today, right? Differences in theology, differences in doctrine, differences in methodology, in the way that people do church. Church is splitting over hard feelings, thousands of denominations. Here's a really kind of silly example, but it's been real for the last 50 years. There have been these, these worship wars in church, and uh, it's amazing that it's still true, but um, back, in the, back in the 90s, it was really strong. And so churches were splitting over what kind of instruments to use in their church services. So I knew this guy in Minnesota that was a pastor of this little church, this kind of rural church. And uh, man, this question about worship was firing on all cylinders. And over the course of one week, he got like 10 phone calls from one camp that says, get rid of the drums. And he got 10 phone calls from the other camp that said, get rid of the organ. And so he just was fed up and he got up on Sunday morning and he said, okay, we're gonna resolve this all to- together once and for all. So for those of you that are in the, the drums camp, Obviously, the problem is that we have too many old people in our church. So I want to ask anybody over the age of 40 if you would just leave the church. But for those of you that are in the the pipe organ camp, obviously, the problem is these young folks that don't know anything about tradition. So I'm going to ask everyone under the age of 40 to leave the church. And since no one's going to be here, I don't need to be here. So I'm going to lock the doors, and we're done. And he walks off. So all of these stunned people are sitting in the sanctuary. And eventually, they start talking to one another. (laughs) And eventually, they start working stuff out. And they start repenting. And they become, once again, a unified body of believers. But man, that... That kind of argument on carpet color and worship styles and you name it has been polarizing the body of Christ for decades, for generations. I think it's amazing that Jesus chose 12 disciples that were very different from one another. There were people on his team of 12 that were political enemies. And these guys weren't just doing a once a week small group. I mean, they were living together, walking together, working together, ministering together every day for three years and beyond, right? On his team, he had Matthew, the former tax collector, who basically was uh, a pawn of Rome and the religious elite in Jerusalem. He was... Um, he got his income from taxing his own people. He wasn't very well liked by the Jews. But you also had Simon the Zealot, who his whole passion pre-Jesus was to get rid of Rome and the religious elite by any means necessary, including violence. Matthew and Simon the Zealot on the same team. How cool is that? Jesus was calling them into an alternative kingdom, 
an alternative society, an upside down kingdom that redefined the boundaries of us versus them and redefined the definition of who is my neighbor and redefined our posture toward those with whom we disagree. Polarization isn't new. It's intense. But the way of Jesus is always to go first and to go further. Let me read you a couple scriptures about going first. Matthew 5, 23. If you are offering your gift at the altar, nice muffler, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Mark 11. And whenever you are Whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him and let it drop. Leave it. Let it go in order that your Father who is in heaven may also forgive you your own failings and shortcomings and let them drop. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your failings and shortcomings. Matthew 18. If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault. But just between the two of you, If he listens to you, you have won your brother over. Jesus is saying, go first. Whether you are the one who has offended someone or you're the one who has been offended, the way of Jesus is to go first. My responsibility is to be the initiator, which is very, very different than how some of us, most of us act, if we're honest, right? If someone has wronged us, then it's like, I'm not budging until they come and say sorry. If we've wronged someone else, then we are so caught up in our own shame or justification or whatever that we are a bit paralyzed in moving toward that person. But Jesus is calling us to move toward in the same way that he has moved toward us. To go first, this is a big deal to God, that reconciliation takes precedence over worship. Reconciliation, bringing relationship back into order, according to Jesus in this passage, takes precedence over worship. That if I'm in the middle of worship and Ralph's leading this song, and in the middle of worship, I realize that I have wronged somebody or someone has wronged me. It's more important to Jesus in that moment that I go and try to make that right than singing my songs to him. That vulnerability takes precedence over self-defensiveness. That the way of Jesus is to to come under. The way of Jesus is to submit, to sacrifice, to lay down my rights for others. The way of Jesus means that obedience takes precedence over feelings. Whether we feel forgiveness in our hearts or not, we're under obligation to obey God. 
And here's the cool part. I think what's true and what probably many of you have already discovered is that when you listen and obey to the Holy Spirit, when he prompts something in you, either in the word or in your prayer, and you act on that, regardless of how you feel about that, feelings usually follow obedience. And even if they don't, we're still called to do it. Reconciliation takes precedence over worship. Vulnerability takes precedence over self-defensiveness. Obedience takes precedence over feelings. Our responsibility is to go first and to go further. Are you with me? I need a nod. Okay, cool. So going further looks a little bit like, like this, what Jesus described. Um, here's the scenario. Let me put it in, in kind of university terms. Have you ever been in a position where you are sitting in class and you're trying to win points with a professor and you say something that you think is profound only to have the professor humble you in front of the whole class. You don't have to raise your hand. Has that ever happened to you? Because that's exactly what happens to Peter in Matthew 18. Peter comes to Jesus and he thinks this is gonna impress Jesus and he says, Jesus, how many times should we forgive someone who has wronged us? Seven times? He's feeling pretty good about that answer. Feels like that's excessive, that's generous. The Jewish leader said three times is appropriate because you don't wanna out forgive God, right? So three times was the max. So Peter took that three, multiplied it by two, added one for good measure, and he smiled with satisfaction of having summarized forgiveness in such extravagant terms. And Jesus says, actually, Try 70 times seven. And then he tells this parable of the unmerciful servant, this man who was forgiven this debt of 15 years wages by the king and immediately goes out into the street, finds someone who owes him just a few bucks and has that person thrown into jail. Jesus's point is that Nothing that others can do to us can in any way compare to what our sin has done to God. And when we experience the forgiveness of our own debt and our own sin, that allows us to be more open-handed and free to forgive others and to love others. God is extravagant in how he forgives and he calls us into that same kind of extravagance. Take this verse, Matthew chapter five, verse 43. You've heard it was said, this is the Sermon on the Mount, by the way. You've heard it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That's Old Testament. But I tell you, Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? 
are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? That's nothing special. I'm calling you to go further. Christ is speaking these words to people who have every logical reason not to forgive. He's speaking these words to people who are the most vulnerable, who've been taken advantage of, whose trust has been betrayed, who have been hurt by the sin of others. And that doesn't sound fair. Yet, in the midst of pain, Christ says, love your enemies. He's not minimizing the pain. He's not minimizing what someone may have done to you or withheld from you. He's not saying just get over it, grow up. He's saying that whatever the offense, there is no debt greater than the one that we owe Christ, and yet he forgives. We have a choice to forgive or not. We have a choice to love our enemies or not. The person who cannot forgive gets so focused on the debt that is owed to him or her that they are able to extend grace to anyone else, but also they are unable to find any satisfaction in God's grace. It becomes a trap, a prison, We become so consumed with our circumstances that our eyes get focused on ourselves and we can't see the cross. The weight of our bitterness keeps us from experiencing the freedom of God's forgiveness. The unwillingness to forgive causes what scripture calls a root of bitterness that grows deep and we keep feeding it. Forgiveness Freedom comes from trusting Jesus. Paul says in Ephesians, forgiving one another as God through Christ has forgiven you. To realize how presumptuous it is to refuse to forgive someone for whom Christ died. Relationship with God is because of that ongoing repentance. Repentance is, is a turning toward what is true, turning toward what is good. It's reorienting, turning away from what imprisons us and turning toward freedom. So ongoing repentance means that we become more and more aware, ongoing awareness Every day, acknowledging what Jesus has done for us, how much love he has extended to us. And that opens our hands and our hearts to be able to extend that to other people. The fruit of repentance is relationship. Is peace. Is even a heart of gratitude. Dan Allender writes, repentance is something that should open the door to joy and connection both with God and with others. If it does not, we don't know the true nature of repentance. Repentance is like any deep heart skill. As you learn to repent, it becomes something that is more refined and exquisite because it opens the door to a heart of gratitude. Colossians chapter 3 
Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body, you together were called to peace. And be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing with hearts to God with gratitude in your hearts. In whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let the peace of Christ rule and reign in you, and let the message of Christ dwell among you together, and let the name of Christ be evident, be glorified through you, no matter what you're doing, no matter where you're going, no matter who you're going with, the, the way of Jesus is all-encompassing, which leads to the final definition of what it means to mind. This shalom, this restoration, this reconciliation, minding the gap. To mind means to pay attention, and it means to regard it as important, but also it means to devote, to take appropriate action, to actually put this into motion. You with me? Okay. So as we wrap up, to be engaged in the work of reconciliation is what he's calling us to today. And I don't know a better way to frame that except just to read some scripture and let that frame for you personally and for us collectively what it looks like to be engaged in the work of bridge building, okay? So I'm gonna ask you, if you would, humor me, would you stand up? And I wanna read these scriptures over us as we stand. And standing is a, is a, a posture of readiness. <laughs> so don't walk out yet, but we're soon gonna walk out. And so this is, this is a, a posture of receiving, of letting the word of God read us. And as the word of God reads us today, to be willing to say, yes, Lord, I repent of that. I am moving toward that. That is an act that I can act upon, uh, maybe even in real time. So as we read through these, if there's a word, if there's a phrase that is a prompt from the Holy Spirit today, then there's all sorts of scriptures that say, don't harden your heart. <laughs> If we hear it, we act on it, right? If there's, a, if there's a, a place of disconnection between you and someone else, even in this room, to stop worshiping and go to that person. But if they're not in this room, maybe give them a, a text and say, hey, can we get some coffee this week? I think we need to talk. Maybe that's with your family. Maybe that's with friendships. As we read through these scriptures to get, start getting a, a picture, a vision for what it means for the church to actually be bridge builders in a world, in a country that is incredibly fractured. Right? All right, I'll shut up. Here's the word. 2 Corinthians 5. 
For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died and therefore all died, and he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. We once regarded Christ in this way. We don't do that anymore. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. And all of this is from God who, get this, who reconciled us to himself through Christ. And he gave us the ministry of reconciliation that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. Get this, as though God were making his appeal through you. We implore you on Christ's behalf. If you haven't done this yet, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Amen? Amen just means yes. Amen? Yeah, okay. First Peter 4, above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you've received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. Ephesians 4, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. So that with one heart, Romans 15, in one mouth, you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus. Accept one another just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. Colossians 3, so clothe yourselves with compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience and bear with each other. That's an ugly word. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you and over all of that, put on love. It binds them together in perfect unity. First Peter 3, be like-minded be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Don't repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing because you were called to do this so that you may inherit a blessing, Romans 12. So don't pretend to love others, really love them. Hate what is wrong, hold tightly to what is good. Love each other with genuine affection and take delight in honoring each other. Never be lazy, but work hard to serve the Lord enthusiastically. Rejoice in our confident hope. Be patient in trouble. Keep on praying. When God's people are in need, be ready to help. Always be eager to practice hospitality. And finally, 1 Timothy 2. I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, 
and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good. And it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Listen to this. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Chevesee. One God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. One mediator. There's only one who stands in the gap. Ezekiel 22, the prophet says on the behalf of God, I looked for anyone to repair the wall and stand in the gap for me on behalf of the land so I wouldn't have to destroy it, but I couldn't find anyone. God is lamenting over his people. I looked for anyone to repair the wall, to bridge the gap. And I couldn't find anyone. And then he sent his son, Jesus, the one who stands in the gap. One commentary said this, Jesus leads the way by taking us back to the cross. There, nothing is ever the same. Human relationships are transformed into divine interactions because Jesus always stands between. Do you hear that? Every human interaction is now a divine interaction because now Jesus stands between. He stands between me and God, bringing together two who were estranged, bringing us into a loving friendship. He stands between the new me and the old me, enabling me to live by divine power, a life of goodness that was otherwise impossible. And he stands between me and others, handing me the opportunity to live beyond myself in love and forgiveness. This is the way of Jesus. While we were at odds with God, while we were his, we were disconnected from him, Christ moved toward us with wild affection. And this kind of love flips the dynamic between our relationships, between us in our families, between us and our friends, between us and the person across the hall, between us and the person on the other side of the country. This involves our whole selves, not just our mouth, not just our opinions. Jesus launched a polarization-busting movement in the first century. And he calls us to pick up where he left off. As we wrap up today, I want to put some, just some reflection questions up on the screen. And I, I want to give us just 
two or three minutes to sit with them before we sing the last song and be sent out. Again, it's not just observing and it's not simply um, uh, taking consideration, but it is actually acting on what the Spirit is prompting. And so these questions are designed to move us toward action today, okay? So here they are. Think of a relationship that is not going as well as you would like. Thus far, what has been the strategy in that? And what might God be leading you into that is in the Jesus way? For what do you need to ask forgiveness from God? What do you need to ask forgiveness from someone else in your life? And is there someone you need to forgive? And to pray, God, what are you calling me to in regard to the situation? Is there something you want me to confess and repent? Is there something I need to forgive? Is there an action I need to take? And then to pray this, just fill in the blank, God, please align my heart with yours and give me the strength and courage to do what you are calling me to do.